Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Toshi and welcome back to Sex and Space. We're here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope everyone out there is doing fantastic. We're thrilled to have you join us today, whether you're a first-time explorer of our podcast or a seasoned traveller who's been on intergalactic journeys with us many times before. Please don't forget to show your support by liking, rating and subscribing. Your feedback means the world to us. Check out our TikTok and Instagram for more great sex and space content. Just search for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. We always love hearing from our listeners and engaging with our community, so please feel free to reach out in any way you like. Now let's get into an awesome interview. For this episode, Jane had the pleasure of speaking with Mike Parrish, and I'm going to let her introduce him. Just before we do, we want to place a trigger warning here to let you know that there's mention of abuse in this podcast episode. Without further ado, let's get into it. Um, welcome, Mike. Um, Mike has um, basically, after spending a really important and commendable 40 years in the fire brigade, which is a whole other conversation, and trained in disaster management, um, co-founded um, For Brian, which is um, online at forbrian.co, a dementia interventions company in 2018. And in 2021, founded the LGBTQ plus dementia advisory group providing specific advice, support, knowledge and expertise for the LGBTQ plus community, living with or supporting someone with dementia. And Mike is um, husband of um, Tom Hughes, who they met in 1975 and lived in a beautiful, loving relationship until Tom sadly passed away with dementia in 2022. Um, so, that's um, a very interesting background you have in there, and um, I look forward to talking with you about it. Welcome. Welcome thank, to Space, Mike. Thank you, Jane, and, and thank you for the introduction. And it is quite difficult to pop a whole lifetime into a few minutes, I know, but it's lovely to speak to you, and thank you so much for the opportunity uh, f- for me to talk. Um, and, I mean, I, I say the thing that drives me really is is about people hearing what they need to hear at the right time, and that doesn't always happen uh, when you're in this kind of realm. Um, so yes, that's, that, that's uh, it's a really good opportunity for me to be able to pass information on. I hope people will listen and and learn from some of the things that we, we talk about. Yeah, well, it's such an important subject, um, and and I guess let's start with um, the advisory group that you set up. Um, tell us a bit about it, how it works. The, the advisory group started uh, simply out of a need for support for LGBTQ plus people who found themselves uh, either with a diagnosis or with a partner with a diagnosis or somebody close of dementia. And like any person with a, a diagnosis of that kind, um, it's life-changing. That's the first step. The second is that particularly from the LGBTQ plus community um, 
access to support isn't always obvious, it's not always uh, specific, and to a lot of extent people solve their own problems. We know that um, LGBTQ plus people often surround themselves with very good supportive friends, uh, not so much with families, not because families are not good, but families have their own things to do. Uh, and um, sometimes people are rejected. But So we've often found that, that help comes from within uh, the community. The trouble is with this is that it's too big a topic for, for people to handle. The knowledge isn't there for most people. And uh, the support structures, broadly speaking, are not there either. And this is where the Dementia Advisory Group came into play. So um, what we do is to, the way it's structured is it's basically an online organisation. And that was kind of born out of COVID. Right. When um, not just out of COVID, COVID meant that we had a mechanism for communicating and networking and, and uh sharing information but secondly um lgbtq people are like anybody else they're all over the place we don't all live in london or brighton which is like a very uh lgbtq plus uh a popular place to, to be to live to 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 you know to have fun um the reality is that that when you get a dementia diagnosis and you're in a remote location in the uk you could be cut off from all lgbtq plus support it's not everybody's desire to go and live in a in a, a friendly town. It's just pra impracticable for many. So support has to come from different sources, and online is a good one. And in fact, um, when I started with Tom about five years ago, when it became very intensive, there were no support groups, and we were beginning to get involved in setting one up in London. We left London as that was getting off the ground, and since then, there are multiple peer support groups and. And uh, this is the primary sort of the first stage of the support that the Dementia Advisory Group makes sure people get access to. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a subject very dear to my heart. We cared for my partner's mum and she came to live with us. And I have friends who work in the space. And one of the things that comes through in the research really strongly is that it's having the support of peers um, and being able to share the journey of others, um, that's one of the most resilience-building things that you can have, yeah? Uh, absolutely. You, you, and you cannot do this alone. Um, and the trouble is there are extra uh, uh, sort of alarm bells that ring it, and those include um, that the reason that LGBTQ plus people surround themselves with, with, with support, we all do that in our own way. For, uh, for us, it's very often about... The friendships we make, that are lifetime, you know, lifetime friendships and so on. But but we also know as a group of people that we can experience oppression and 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 prejudice and discrimination, mm -hmm. even now, still. Um, and I won't. Well, maybe later we'll talk about uh, one of the projects we're involved in. But for me, to give you an idea of what this does to me, uh, I when my partner got a dementia diagnosis, it was quite a long time before we got to the point where he needed hands-on help every day. Yeah. But it, that was years long by the time we got to that. But in the lead-up to that, I was looking for advice. I wanted to meet people like me, supporting somebody in a same-sex relationship, because those nuances are different. When somebody came to our house, a nurse or social services or somebody else, they wouldn't always understand that we were two men in the same house. So... Rather than the ask, 
uh, <clears throat> people often make assumptions like, well, I think it's wonderful that you're looking after your father like that. Ugh. I think it's great that you're, you're keeping an eye on your brother. I can't tell you how many of those things I've been mm. told. Even even now, after years and 50 years of changes of law and and, and uh, for, for LGBTQ plus people to be um, accepted into society fully, we still experience it. And the worrying thing I found in the research I was doing was that when people are in LGBTQ plus people are in care, they're too often the, the victim of, of abuse, not just from staff, but from other people in care homes, because their life experiences have taught them, perhaps if they're older, that people like us, in my own lifetime, it's illegal for me to be uh, yeah. a gay man in my own lifetime um, when I was younger. Um, and people hold on to that, particularly in the, in the realm of dementia. Memory goes a bit, you know, it's not always a, um, it, it can be a, f a factor in, in all of this. And the last thing I would do, if any of us, if you knew that the person you were caring for, that the only route to, to, to proper full 24-hour care was in a care home, but that there was a risk that that person would be abused or, or assaulted, well, of course you wouldn't do it, would you? How do you know that that isn't going to happen? And that can be anybody. But it, yeah. in particular, it does happen to LGBTQ plus people, and it's terrifying. And it's terrifying, and I'll sort of summarise this, is because a lot of us have been through the abuse. Tom and I, when we were young, we met in 75. We were in an illegal relationship because we were both under 21. We could have been arrested simply for being together. Right. Um, and what? And we would walk in the street, be called names, go into a cafe, be called names and threatened and so on. The trouble is all of that carries on in your life as a kind of a, a risk assessment that you do yeah. in your mind. And then when you get to a point when you need... You are then dependent on the society that was not accepting you. You can imagine the conflict that goes on there. So I chose to keep him at home. It was very, very hard work. But not everybody can do it. And that's got to change. That's one of the things that we want to challenge. Yeah, the keeping at home gets really, really tough towards the end. And, yes. Um, that's when you really need um, to be able to put additional supports around you. And what you're describing is... Um, traumatic it um, is and and you know if, if we just take it slightly on another step we, we've now emerged into um areas of people's self-identity maybe as trans or as non-binary and they these are relatively new social kind of changes yeah. um for the people involved they are that's that's what makes them authentic without that they don't feel that they're being authentic they don't feel they're telling the truth they don't feel they're able to convey how important that is to them, particularly when people are resisting it. So if you can imagine going into a care home, for example, with cognitive problems, but with a lifetime maybe where you've changed your, you know, you've, you've had surgery to change your physical appearance. Mm. And then the care home people don't know, you know, maybe how you would dress that day because your memory may fluctuate between yeah. remembering that you were, born in a, in a sort of different sexual and uh, different sort of gender identity and for non-binary people also you know it's about addressing somebody with respect and how quickly that will get lost in a care home where people are very very busy where um, people may not respect that and all of this is is daunting for people and it shouldn't be you know we pride ourselves in democratic societies on the basis that we care for the most vulnerable and I'm afraid 
it sounds awful. I don't mean it to sound awful, but we've got some way to go before before this will be something which you can not have to worry about, not have to think about. Um, oh, in this I, I don't. I don't think it's awful at all. I think it's a, a, a really important and constant call out. There are layers here, like already it's so problematic putting people into care, this outsourcing of our elders often, um, although early onset dementia can mean much younger, but um, means that we are relying on a system that often is run by people who are in it for profit. Um, and it's not um, necessarily going to therefore produce the safest or most loving or more most caring environment. Uh, absolutely. Yes, wonderful people working in the space. Um, I started my career doing that <laughs> and I loved it, but that's not always true. No. And then your next layer, which you're talking to, which is so critical, is to understand that this comes with the systemic um, resistance, abuse, prejudice, problems yeah. inbaked, and particularly with the age of the community that are often in there as well, which is something I think that, you know, it, people don't necessarily think as part of the challenge. So in your experience with all of this, have you started to look at developing a toolkit to work with the care homes themselves? Yes, there there is, and, and I'm I'm going to, to apologise because I can't remember the name well enough. But if it's possible to put that to you, to send that to you another time, that can be yeah, provided. There is, write it. yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put it. Well, for those of you listening, um, check out the bio along with the podcast, and we'll put links to all the projects that Mike talks about. Fantastic. That that um, yes, there is. In fact, it's been developed by another academic, and I have to say, you know. We don't paint. We don't paint the picture entirely, sort of shades of grey, so to speak. That may not be the best expression here, but anyway. um, but but actually, um, there are right now. I mean, I'm involved in three academic projects to try and improve understanding of diversity and equalities within care and within the the support of carers, for example, let alone pe- people yeah. being cared for. But but actually, it comes down to and you you, you mentioned it uh, absolutely succinctly about you know cultural differences uh, in care homes about the fact that a care home uh, group may be more interested in their shareholders' expectations than the people receiving care, um, and you know we can't help some of those influences. But what we can do is improve the the experiences of of carers. So I mean they are underpaid. There is no question. We we. That's in some ways that if we if we can't start on that point, you know, the lowest level in, and I mean that in terms of the fate, the hands-on bit. If we can't resolve that, trying to solve it up further up the line may may take much much longer. Yeah. However, um, there are academic projects, many many of them. I hope we get to mention a few as we go through. One of them um, is uh, a, an academic who's produced a. A training toolkit, which is, I think it's available for free. And I, I, I put myself in danger there. I think it's available for free. It would probably come at a cost if it's done by a consultant, you know, in a care home, right. for example, or with a group. Yeah. However, it's something you can bring into a, a working environment and it will enable you to alert staff to the difference, cultural differences that LGBTQ plus people face, why those make them, people may make them not tell you even that they identify as LGBTQ yeah. plus um, because of the fear in, you know, so if, so, so yes, a short answer is yes, there is a toolkit available. 
and um, it's one I hope of, you know we'll increase on that. There are also I know one somebody I'm, uh, I've known for a long time uh, now five six seven years who is a consultant in providing advice and in fact one of the groups I went to in Bristol fun enough near, near where I live um, it was a collection of six care home management staff and uh, all of their staff in a big room and Tom and I were asked to sort of talk about our experiences and why we're anxious about going to care and so on and so forth so that well, it is being done but if you consider in the UK this is the big statistical thing there are even if you only look at care homes 22,000 care homes right. and if you imagine that if you look at the population statistics how likely it is that there'll be an LGBTQ plus person in care in there it's highly likely there'll be at least one oh, so so you're looking at monster numbers but maybe very disparate and it's a very difficult thing to get in but of course some of the staff will identify as LGBTQ plus as well and I know that some of those staff don't feel comfortable coming out to their management for a number of reasons. Therefore, they can't influence maybe the way the care home treats its its residents. So there are multiple levels in this that, that yeah. we need to break down and get to the root of and make changes. Um, knowledge, information, learning is how it starts. You know, that's where we come from. And that's why awareness, being visible and all those things are so important, like this podcast, because another you know, another group of people are going to see this, hear this rather, and hopefully they'll think about it and then somewhere in their life they'll maybe instrument some sort of change and make things better. That That's really what it's what we're all about. Absolutely. <clears throat> Awareness and um, starting to think about it is, is a good place to be, right? Um, mm. But also potentially being able to look at some of the more activist things you're doing and think about whether they want to pick up those tools mm. in other countries. Um because uh, do you work with outside of the UK as well or are you very much UK we, we do fun enough um, uh, it's very exciting for a small company of you know uh, people uh, all of their own backgrounds some of them very much we've got two people doing PhDs within this sphere right now mm -hmm. we've got we've got other people who are already PhDs in related to dementia and we've got people with personal experience we've got a director two directors who now, two directors, I think, who have a diagnosis of, of dementia. We have other core members with a diagnosis. We've other, like me, a carer of somebody with a diagnosis, as it was when Tom was alive. <clears throat> so we're made up of the very people that, that want things to change, which is a really good thing. Um, and um, we can learn from the people that are with us as directors or as core members who can tell us from lived experience what it is that needs to change. It's, it, you know, it's really important to hear yes. from the sources. A lot of assumptions are made about minority groups, about what they need. This is sort of gaslighting, you know, well, we know what you need. We, we know that it can't be easy, but actually you don't. We need to get to listen to the voices uh, and then make the, you know, build the changes upon that. That's very important. So in terms of the international connection, goodness me, uh, it, it very quickly... Um, we're connected with a project, some of the members of our, our group, in a recent uh, conference in Helsinki. Um, it was a, an international European conference on dementia with a presentation. They got second prize in, in how, how they influenced diversity within the, the confines of that di uh, European group. So in other words, they can't go backwards now. 
And in fact, the one of the speakers uh, who's um, a, a member of the team has now been invited to do the keynote speech in the next uh, international dementia organization which uh, conference, which is taking place in Krakow in um, Poland next year. I may be going myself, but slightly oh, for cool. different reasons which I've come to. So, uh, and when we've gone out with articles uh, and we've done, we do professional reports, uh, articles for journals and so on, the comeback is often from abroad as well. We, I had somebody from America wrote to me because of the article I did in, in the Guardian newspaper in the UK and said, do you have a chapter out here in, in Texas? And I thought how that my heart lifted hugely because it means that people identify with the message that they're hearing and it, it and don't we all want a bit of hope that, that things are changing? Because I'm afraid out there, and I'll be absolutely frank, and I think any of your, your people listening who do identify as LGBTQ+, will also know that there's a great deal of reach coming out of um, across the pond from us in terms of the states, in terms of influencing how LGBTQ people might be refused care, how um, um, they might be rejected by the state for marriage, and so on and so forth. It's not, you know, things are not always going in the right direction and that, that there's some not so good news out there. But in answer to your question, yes, um, we have influence uh, internationally. In fact, one of the films that we are connected to with a campaign, I hope I get to mention it a bit more, um, is now in New York uh, with one of the people that's quite close to us um, at a documentary uh, uh, um, festival um, and they won the Cardiff Iris LGBTQ Prize Festival in the UK for the most number of people voting for a film about a gay couple, one of whom went into care and was abused. And it's a sad story, but with a with a kind of a golden um, edge to it, which means that that there is something that comes from it which is positive. And don't we don't we need those things? So we yeah, really so we, we yeah, we really do. So tell me. So let's jump to it. Tell me about the film, right? <laughs> Okay, it's called Ted and Noel at the moment in the UK. It might be available abroad. I don't know. You might need to, to twiddle with your, your, your devices. But um, yeah. it's called Ted and Noel, and it's on Channel 4. Here we have Channel 4, uh, which is a standard British uh, television series, a, a station that mm -hmm. broadcasts all the time, but it also has a catch-up app. So on, yeah. the, on your computer and some televisions, you can delve back into the archives and find things that, that have been on. And it had been on on a news program. It's twenty five minutes long. It's called Ted and Noel, and um, it's about uh, a couple that that, that uh, um, one of whom went into care after fifty years of living together. Like me and my partner were, were together for forty seven years, fifty years loving relationship. Not only that, they're both very active in the in the emerging gay liberation front in the early seventies. The first Pride March the first kissing in Trafalgar Square, which was completely legal for two men to kiss one another in public, but the police didn't act on it because there were too many people. So we're talking about real change makers, real history makers. You know, these people are going to be in history. So one of them sadly um, developed dementia, went into care home, and um, it's all in the film. And what, what happened was that uh, um, his partner, Ted, um, took this up with the care home management and then with the local authority, and in the end, um, sought to 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 get to to raise the issue, not to get compensated. To say this is going on, it's got to stop. Yeah. And he, I, I won't get into the details. It's unfair of me to sort of do all of the right. detail. But 
Um, the abuse was diabolical. It was appalling. Can you imagine the person you love most in the world? And I know this from Tom, that you want to protect, uh, even though you can't stop what's happening to them. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do, I think. Uh, yeah. Whether it's dementia or any other terminal disease, when you can't stop it, it's heartbreaking. But when it's when on, on top of that, to, for that person to then be assaulted, literally, you know, beaten up and bruised and shouted at and, and is it's beyond inhumane in my view. It's it's and this is happening. We know this is happening because there's a report which also came out about the same time by a, an organization called Compassion in Care. It's online, you can see it. Okay. Five hundred people up about five hundred reports are relatively recent cases of witnessed abuse in cams of LGBTQ plus people. It's a big problem. Mm. There's more to all the story than that. The film is on, available to watch. It's quite heartbreaking to watch, but it's also full of love. And that, that's what keeps it, it makes it watchable because Ted, I, I've got to know him. Um, he, he's the surviving partner and I can't think of anybody I want more to help more. And, and we've, we've joined up forces with, with him and with the uh, documentary maker, the, the, the director of the film. And uh, <clears throat> we're having, they want a campaign, they want an impact campaign from the film. Yeah. It's all very well raising people's heckles and yes. saying, goodness me, this is all wrong, we've got to do something. And they're not doing something. The difference here is that they are, they are stepping up and having uh, a film. And it's the first campaign meeting, they asked me to facilitate that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um, that's going to grow on. So we're getting legal advice being brought in. There's some funding to get this off the ground, and that we've got people who are interested in in bringing this to Parliament. And it's already it's already on that process. We, there's already that contact. They're going to remake the film. It's going to be longer, but I, I won't say any more about that because I don't know the whole story yet. But it's 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 a mark of change. So often, so often, don't we find that something awful has to happen before change. Yeah. And, and I do hope this is this is the point at which things turn around. I, I really, it's got to. I yeah. think it's um, it sounds like an amazing project and potential initiatives to come out of it can be at both regulatory and cultural levels. And yeah. ultimately you need it to be working in different ways. To Absolutely. Um, and also awareness, you know. I mean, the, the other side of being in care is for some, it's the moment at which um, some people come out as LGBTQ mm -hmm. um, when they are in that space and no yes. longer with family and partners. That's a whole other thing. You know? Well, I may, I, one of the things that comes out in the film, and I've heard it before from reading lots of reports all over the world, before, as Tom got his dementia diagnosis, is that, that people who have a long-term partner, we're talking 50 years, mm of loving, cuddling, holding, sharing, you know, in the same way that any other relationship. You know, we can't say that gay relationships, same-sex relationships are any different from any other loving relationship. We need to get that message out there. That's, that's point one. Mm. The other point is that when you've that much love in, you know, interdependency and love with somebody, um, to not, for example, go into a care home and sit by their bed and not hold their hand, in case somebody sees you, not kiss them in case the door opens at the wrong moment and the wrong person sees it. Can you imagine? I, you know, it's beyond, it's almost, well, I, I can't put words to it, but it, it's got, you know, th this is, this, these are the things, if people are inhibited 
from even showing their love to people in, in that environment, that shows you there's something very wrong. You know, we wouldn't expect that to happen to a heterosexual couple. You wouldn't expect that, and you wouldn't anticipate that if you kiss your 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 partner in a cab, that somehow that was going to initiate some awful level of abuse and and uh, mm-hmm. and disrespect. So why should it happen to us? You know, it's for the same yeah. reason. It's, the love is the most important thing. Um, yeah. This is, I mean, it's is, you know, it's a whole life commitment that you have here. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Um, Absolutely. What, 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 do you, do you have a favorite story about this work that, that you've experienced? Goodness, that is a really good question. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. One, one I would say, I think when you're a, a small company, you know, we've only just become a legal company. So we've registered an address, we've got insurance, we've got bank account. These things, that takes time, and it takes yeah. time away from, you know, what you, the core interests that you've got. And that, that's one of the problems with, and the only way to have an impact is to become a company, and then people, mm. you, you validate yourself a, a quite a lot by doing that, and it means that you then carry a voice much higher up the chain. So it has to be done. Um, and it's a hard job when people are looking at any cause, any civil cause, any social cause. Um, it's a hard one to do. However... Um, we did do that, and it, that happened in May. Formally, it switched over in May from being a, a group of people who are all committed to this to one that, that has representation, you know, probably fundamentally, legally. Um, but but the, perhaps one of the most incredible things, I think, for us, it might not seem so much for somebody who doesn't identify as LGBTQ. I'm sure most people have heard of Stonewall. <clears throat> it is the the probably the most important voice of LGBTQ plus people. Certainly in my lifetime, it, um, it's been a constant uh, source of political campaigning, of change, of pushing, of funding, of, you know, it, it's always been there um, upholding my uh, right to live, my right to be accepted for who I am and my right to take my part in society as fully and as meaningfully as possible. Um, so they're important. We all feel, all of the group feel that. And I think most people are aware of activism will know that. And one day we had a, an email and it was a referral of somebody who'd contacted Stonewall to find out a bit more about their their situation, which were a couple, the one had just, just recently had a dementia diagnosis and they, they that Stonewall referred them to us. And I thought, this is the, a joyful moment. We all looked at one another online and realised that this was when this is when things changed. We've yeah. suddenly become a force for change and that recognised yeah. for it. And and this is so important because once we get referred, we know what to do with people. We know how to help them. We know um, <clears throat> you know what they need and so on. So it was that's that. There are many stories that are so important for us and joyful. That was one that really really felt made us feel that we we'd arrived so yeah yeah that's really cool <clears throat> and and i mean you the world that you're in is fraught with challenges and you've talked to some of those uh, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges for the project ahead for the work that you're trying to do it that's a, again you know i i we we already exist in in a uh a challenging environment, you know, as an LGBTQ plus person, if you believe that conversion therapy, for example, is not appropriate, it, you, you can, you can, you can, you can manipulate people how they feel with psychology, 
but you can't change somebody's uh, sexual identity, you know, mm. who, who they're attracted to. It just doesn't happen. It, it's wishful thinking at best, um, but it's damaging and, and, and as far as the UN concerned, it's, it's not much less than torture. Mm. Um, and yet, we're in the twenty, you know, we're we're in twenty twenty three, and our own government in the UK has keeps kicking this idea around that they won't put in a bill to prevent young impressionable people being told that they can somehow change their sexuality from one sex to another, mm. uh, from you know being gay to being straight. If that worked, if if conversion therapy worked, if the influence of pressure worked, um then I would have grown up heterosexual because mm-hmm. I, as a boy, watched adverts with men and women kissing, watched films with, you know, sometimes more than men and women kissing, not but not very often, but on television. Uh, there were everything around me was geared up to, to for me to be turned out of the sausage machine as heterosexual, mm-hmm. and yet it didn't work because you can't change your innate sexuality. Now, the reason for mentioning all this in terms of challenges mm-hmm. is to is for politicians to understand properly and fully what being the part of this community is wherever you are on that spectrum and that we need not just uh, protection from uh, those who think that we can be manipulated changed or influenced uh, against our wishes um, but to put in protections now if you think that I knew in about 19 65, so 10 years old, earlier than that, without question, that I knew my sexual identity. A lot of people say, how can you know? Um, well, how can you know you're heterosexual? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's what you know. It's what you innately feel about your peers and so on. So not by so two years later, the law changed, so that meant that you didn't get put in prison if you had sex with another man, in my case. Um, some years after that, we had the first Pride March, maybe 1972, but that was illegal by... Um, it wasn't until the 80s that the age of consent had gone from 21 to 18 and eventually to 16 to, to equalise with heterosexuals. And then we wait until 2010 before we have what's called the Equality Act, which puts in protection for people who identify as LGBTQ or different sexual orientation. Um, so I've spent a whole life without protection, if you, if you look at it that way. I could have been sacked. And I did know people who were sacked in the, in the late 70s and the 80s and into the 90s because they identified as LGBTQ+, and their employers didn't like it, and, this, and you could sack somebody you know, constructively, just get rid of them. Um, now you can't. Um, mm. But that shows how long that's taken, 50 years from the change of the law until structurally some societal changes took place. You know, And so we are up against, we are still fighting for Full equality. We, we know, you know, arguably it's a it's a t- tender subject, but there are those who don't believe that we should allow to be married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of anything more important for me and Tom when we could. We had a civil partnership, but the marriage is is a public statement. It it is saying we are in love. We are we love one another. We will we contribute in every possible way to our family and to friends and to to society as a whole. And we want to be part of that. We don't want to be an add-on. That's that's the thing. However, I do accept that some people have very strong feelings about what constitutes a marriage in terms of you know the religious connotations and so on. I get that. Yeah. But you can't. You, if you either have second-class citizens or you don't. 
you don't yeah and that is the critical thing if you accept yeah. that some people can't then you're accepting second class citizenship and i don't think that's a democratic way or democratic society's way forward i really don't yeah i mean it goes back to the education model right you know that that because we the law may have changed but we haven't changed the way we educate particularly broadly and i won't say everywhere but sexuality sexual identity sex at all pleasure um, we don't address those subjects through education and therefore change isn't really easily affected when you've got all of those layers of cultural stories that you were talking about people kissing on tv you know yeah, yeah. what you get taught at school the fact that you know what was it janet and john <laughs> so, trotting down the street it's always kind of heteronormative um and you know often white um and yeah the institutions that they get offered up like marriage um funnily enough from my end as an old lefty feminist i i ran screaming from the institution of marriage because i considered it so patriarchal and and oppressive yeah. but you know it means different things to different people it, it, it does we don't uh, get taught and if we don't get taught um, and I would add an I onto LGBTQ, uh, um, and the IA plus thing is, you know, yep. uh, important. But but the I insertion um, is because we don't get taught even that intersex people exist. Exactly. Um, you know, this whole kind of elision of of a, of a huge community, millions of people, yeah. and we don't get taught in schools. So uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think society can't move forward without 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 um without to say there's another word for it reality without the reality you know, yeah. taboo taboo has been a big thing in in the life i've lived not just about lgbtq plus people uh, or intersex people it's taboo it this fear of talking about something in case it makes it more or in case it yeah. it makes everybody suddenly become uh, uncontrollably you know oversexed or something yeah, yeah. it's really bizarre uh, yes. Because if you talk to people, they all think no, no, it's nonsense. So if we all know it's nonsense and taboo just gets in the way of good education, it gets in the way of, you know, of people learning about sex at an early age, maybe to help prevent unwanted pregnancies, for example, all these things. There's so many aspects to this. Um, yeah. But if your sexuality itself is not talked about because it's uncomfortable for people or because they have to visualise what's actually happening, we're yeah. never going to get anywhere. You know, be, be, pushing things away does not help humanity. It doesn't. You know, reality means that you have to deal with the facts. You know, in every other sphere of, of humanity, we deal with facts. You know, but, but it seems that when it comes to human biology, it's, it's, still, it's still almost like childlike attitude about sexuality. Yeah. Um, and it's not healthy. No. And, and so you, I mean, you described your background as, as hiding your own sexuality. You were in a very um, kind of mm, dominant masculine normative space. <laughs> my, my son is a fireman <laughs> and it's pretty intense environment, although there's been some change. But I can see how that might be even more constraining than other career choices. But then um, you moved forward because of being in this space with your partner. Um, into m being more accepting of being able to to communicate who you were as a couple. Um, yeah, that that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think 
you know, I'm like anybody. I'd, I'd like to sit here and say that I've been an activist and I've been out and proud all my life. I haven't. Mm. Um, and I also have to carry, in a way, I have to carry, I'm going to call it the shame of not doing it mm. because because if I'd have done it earlier, it might have it meant other people can see me, even if I'm putting up with a bit of rubbish because of it, that it might influence more than one person. It might be 10 people who see that happening to me and then they come out, they change. This this kind of um, uh, sort of domino effect is incredibly important for mm. for, for issues which are, have social um, uh, constraints on them or, or social uh, taboos on them. Um, when I was young, I remember my parents uh, talking about, but, but one relative came in and, and talked to my mother and I overheard it in the kitchen just. And she talked, do you know what, what queers do in bed? Uh, so there's one there. So, um, and I knew, even though I was quite young, I knew that was, they talked about people like me. Um, and then others where in the newspapers, people being sent to prison because they're homosexual. Um, even one of the British prime ministers at the time got into all sorts of trouble with a boyfriend and it all went, in fact, it's not the only one. There was another one after that. Um, and it all, it all became about their sexuality, not the fact that they were, politically, you know, gifted people and, and influential and, and could do things. It all became what, what they did with their body parts in bed. I mean, it's extraordinary. And the trouble is that shame, because of that, that shame then grows into when you go into a room full of people and you don't know who's gay, who isn't, mostly in the fire brigade, probably not gay, but but I, I will come back to that. And, and then when you say I'm homosexual, what you're saying is this is what I do in bed. It's like yeah. that's where the difficulty, it hurts in here because you, you know that, that people are going to be jumping to that thought. Well, goodness me, when, when they take their clothes off, um, this is what they do. You know, it's almost like they're seeing the, the most, you know, they, do, do we do that with heterosexuals? I don't think we do. But, but, but you see how that is different. Oh, and yes. that, yes. Yeah. So yeah. if you combine um, the wrong kind of identities on television, you know, very flamboyant, gay, nothing wrong with that people i didn't identify with that uh monty python the men dressing as women and being very funny and it's sort of slightly gay but not really you know where is your model for this where do you who do you hook on to to give you the confidence that who you are is okay that who you are you can defend that position because they are like you and you can say these are your parameters when you go at me look at this person because you wouldn't have a go at them over the same issue so yeah. that meant that if I came out, not only was it possible in the earlier days that I could lose my job, that was always a possibility. I had one manager, I could go on, as a, there's a whole book here, but one of them said to me, I was very upset today. The reason is because my partner had gone to, to Scotland for for Christmas and I was I was in pieces uh, and he, he had to go and that was that, you know. And I went to work and I think I might have been crying or something. You know, it's it's okay, we, we cry as human beings. And my boss and... and um, my boss called me and said, um, have you got something, he was Scottish as well, as was my partner, he said to me, have you got something to say, Parish? And I said, um, I said I'm just a bit upset, I'm, I'm, my, my flatmate has gone and I'm, I'm feeling a bit lonely. He said, are you trying to tell me you're homosexual? And this is completely inappropriate, you know, to now, yeah. make, my goodness me, can you imagine, how does that make you feel that you can come out safely? How did it make you feel welcome in the world to be who you are and to so instead of actually 
supporting me and comforting me and maybe saying things that are nice. You yeah. get the complete opposite. So where is the incentive to come out? Yeah. Um, and also then working with mostly older people who is kind of uh, social sort of understanding of LGBTQ issues would have been very low down on the, their yeah. personal experience level. And I knew that uh, <clears throat> even if they weren't going to you know, beat me up or push me over or, or shout at me, that they, they would have a very negative opinion of me. And okay. that's a really difficult thing to live with. Yeah. To every day to to be ashamed of yourself or to make to, for you to feel shame it's it's an incredibly powerful and and toxic um sort of tool that society uses against people who can uh, no, who are not otherwise protected mm. so so going to the fire brigade it wasn't overtly kind of there wasn't a lot of you know jokes uh, off joke offhand jokes about puss and queers and i didn't hear a lot of that but but you're in an environment where in the operational side, in a station, you know, most of them were built for all male, you know, dormitories. So you'd have 10 beds in a room for, for the watch, you know, to sleep on, waiting for the alarm to go at night. So how do you fit in somebody who's openly gay into that, let alone a woman? Mm. Um, how, do you, how do you change the culture? Well, it took time, and that's the problem, with, even with the brigade. Yeah. Um, I'd say now they're probably one of the best organisations um, although they're still coming from the criticism, Stonewall, they're right up on the top there. Um, and I'll tell you one little story just to add to, to how different it was when I started and how it ended. Yeah. But I did work with people who are openly gay, fire officers. They eventually knew that I was gay. And so it took me until I was 40 before I got to that stage. 40 years old. It, it, oh, yeah. I can't tell you what that does to your insides it, it, and to your psychology. It, it's... It's a painful thing. And if you're heterosexual, with the greatest respect, you may have other things that you hide, but, but you don't have to hide your really your true self. And that is a, a, an awful thing to make people or ask people to do for the sake of other people's feelings. It's not right. So, so getting to the other end. So that was the brigade. Um, and um, one of my managers turned out to be gay. I won't name him. You will know if he hears this. And he kind of encouraged me. But I was getting stopped in the corridor at 40 years old uh, by people deliberately doing it so nobody else was around. And, so, and one of them was said to me, you know, we're rather worried about you, Michael, because you're not married. This is oh. insidious. It's horrid and it's yeah. vile and it's bullying. Mm. And if an organisation can't see that, that is more damaging than having a gay person in your, on, your, on your books. Yeah. Goodness me, you're, you're getting nowhere with an organisation. That cannot exist in an organisation. It's damaging unbelievably damaging so why well, i'm towards the end um we were invited to go to a pride march and the, one of the fire tenders was going to be dressed up in all sorts of uh colorful things rainbows and and fire officers around it standing and walking with it so i walked into this fire station in soho in london which is the gay place to go one of the gay places to go in london uh, with with my lovely husband tom and when we walked in Right in front of us, as we went in the door, we came into the area where all the fire engines would normally be, and there was actually a party going on. And standing next to the commissioner, who's probably himself, probably had been about uh, getting on for six foot, uh, was somebody at least a foot taller than them, in huge high heels. In It was a, a drag queen that was going to go off. At this party it was all about, you know, going down on Pride March and all the hooting and shouting. And it was, the mo it was surreal, but it was, I can't tell you, it's quite touching, actually. Uh, to spend your life 
hiding and for that to happen. Uh, and whatever you know, opinion people have about drag and it's not serious, it actually it, it's it's a way of it's an entree into it. It's a way of understanding, you know, pantomime. Uh, even since you know Shakespeare, men have dressed as women for fun to to raise people's sense of joy and happiness and so on. Um, and for me, uh, I, it kind of uh, it said, you know, things have really changed. Can you imagine that the commissioner standing next to something, with a, both with a drink in their hand, uh, and it, it was very deeply touching to me. Yeah, yeah. as you can tell. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah. I guess one of the things that strikes me about listening to your stories, which are amazing, um, is that how lucky you were to find each other and have that relationship through that time. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of us, when, when we had a, a, a fantastic relationship or friendship or Whatever it is that, that in life has uh, made us feel uh, wanted and centred and meaningful and important and, you know, all of those were all of the things that make humanity meaningful. And when somebody d d gives that to you, um, it's very difficult to imagine, as I do, did do and still do, wonder what would have happened had I not met him. I, mm. I think... You know, when you when you've locked into somebody, he was innately a very kind, gentle, always full of smiles, always full of humour, happy. Um, and I'd come from a slightly different background, you know, uh, without going into any detail of that. It was a struggle for me just to accept who I was. And here he was enjoying himself, enjoying life. Even though he had challenges, he mm. stepped up above that and took me with him. And I often still do reflect on, goodness me, I'm not sure how I would have survived without him. Yeah. And, and to have had that loving relationship since we were both, um, well, it's 20, 19 to 20, it was just on that cusp, is extraordinary. And I, I would, you know, it's like a, a magic. And to lose him has been equally unbelievably painful. But so um, he's changed me. He's made me the person I am. And... And I, I will never, ever um, be able to thank him enough. And it, it's because the gift of life is, is not just about living. It's about your life having meaning. Yeah. And, and, um, and he did that for me. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I, I, I can almost hear his voice through yours. <laughs> yeah. It's really nice. And so if, what for, what, going forward... Um, I guess what what next for you in terms of projects? What what do you see ahead? It's a good question. I, I um, the group is is going from strength to strength. You no, know, we have challenges, um, but um, the commitment is there. You know, if, if there's been a time when you take some, one of us out of it, and it might not have worked quite so well, but I think we've now got people who who have a shared kind of strategy for this. Where do we need to go? What mm. needs to change mm. from either from the bottom up or the top down or both in, in reality? Um, who do we need to influence? How can we be influential? All of these things. Um, so it's already in, it's already deep down in the hearts of all of these people. Mm. Uh, and more important than all of that is this incredibly powerful commitment 
you know, to give up work, to, to do all the, you know, so many people are doing this out of the, well, we don't get paid, you know, it's, it's an entirely voluntary thing. But we do it because we know that nobody else should go through what some of us have been through or some of the stories that we've heard. We want this to change and that um, is a huge driver. I don't want anybody out there in the UK to be on their own looking at a dementia diagnosis, supporting somebody and having and looking up to the sky and thinking, how am I going to do this? How can I do this without help? How can I do this without understanding what impact this is going to have on us? And and maybe they're not supported by friends or family. Who knows? Mm. Because we know this is a common uh, factor in in long term LGBTQ plus relationships is that. Mm too often there isn't the strength, a strong family support, or they may not have, you know, good friends. As you get older, you too tend to lose friends. So, yeah. so, um, so where it's going, I, we, we've got, we know that we're, we're already, we get many requests in now because of all the stuff we've done. It's almost like it's bouncing back. So, so our inbox uh, is regularly full of things. When we do an article or a journal or an interview of some kind, um, in come all the questions and, and more people have been alerted. We know in the UK, we're looking at a probable number of maybe 60 to 90,000 people who identify as LGBTQ plus IA and, and any part of that spectrum as LGBTQ plus IA plus who um, have a dementia diagnosis. And how many people do we know? If I went round and thought all the people that we've been in contact, all the individuals, nothing like that. Maybe 500 people. I don't even know. Maybe less than that. So we need to do a lot of work to bring yeah. to bring that, that those people into the fold and get them the support and knowledge that they need. Because it is anybody who's been through dementia, it doesn't matter what your sexual or gender identity is, forget all of that. Dealing with dementia is a monumental undertaking. Um yeah. It's it's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting, and um, it's it's hard work because we don't innately have that knowledge. We don't get taught that at school. No. Most people find out that when they get a dementia diagnosis. Um, and my husband did at fifty three or cognitive decline, oh. fifty three, and That's I know people even younger than that now because uh, because we're able to spot it more more exactly. Um, and the sooner you get that, the better, because the sooner you got that, you can start building your your platforms and your support yeah. and your structures to make it more, to, to be able to manage it. You um, raise a really interesting point, because often what happens is people go into denial and they leave it a long time before they actually look for help or, or even yeah. get validation that something's going on because they're afraid of it. Yeah. But your uh, advice uh, is to get information and to get that validation it, early, yeah yeah and it's an odd thing isn't it to, to i suppose this happens with any serious illness that people have is that you're forcing yourself to look at things you don't want to look at yeah. and it's about that's a big step is is acceptance and i get that but the reality is that, that you there are things you can do there are even medicines now that can help deal with some of the the um consequences of, of dementia so there are good reasons for getting a diagnosis the trouble is the health services in the uk are not still not really geared up for that properly and the pathways for dementia and I, um, can be quite long and arduous and they they for me with tom 2008 cognitive decline 2011 retired medically early because of an intervention by somebody wonderful 
um, 2016, first diagnosis, eight years between cognitive decline and a diagnosis, eight years. Three years later than that, 2019, a further diagnosis, which changed the diagnosis completely. So it's not, it's not very scientific, but, mm. and this is why the journey, in this journey, you need a lot of support and some critical things you must do before the person loses their capacity to read and write and talk. Some really critical things that people need to do. What would you say those were? I, and I'm glad you asked because I was about to say them. <laughs> um, yeah, I absolutely. Get, if you've got wills, get them sorted out. Yeah. Do it as soon as you get the first inkling that you, your diagnosis is on yeah. the card. Second one is um, get power of attorney, a lasting power of attorney and engage somebody else or more than one to be able to support you in that process in case something happens to you. This is really, really, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to it another time if we can. But so, so a will, lasting power of attorney. Um, and I have to say, getting a partnership legalized. A civil partnership is enough. Marriage is slightly better. There are some nuances, but not significant enough to make that big difference. Those are three things. I know not everybody wants a civil partnership. And as you say, people don't want to emulate sort of heteronormative things. and things. I get that. But actually, in law, it doesn't matter what you think. If you haven't got a, a formal partnership or a lasting power of attorney, and I'm afraid there's a story, I know we can't go into it, of a lesbian couple with a 50-year living, loving relationship and as soon as the partner went into care, the family created a barrier around her and stopped her partner oh. from communicating and having anything to do with their health care. So these things are important. Will, lasting power of attorney, and where possible, a, a, a partnership, a you know, legalised partnership, because that protects your, your influence over them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And trust me, um, uh, we don't always think that relations are going to cause problems, and Mostly they don't, but when they do, it, I can't imagine what it must be like for people when that happens. Oh, that's hideous. Um, well, that that's really good advice, and, and I think that some of the steps people need to take are to make sure that they're set up to succeed um, and, to, and to have voice. Yes. Basically, for their partners. Um, and maybe um, also to look, if there is a need for care, to find out if the space has any acknowledgement or framework for working with lgbtq plus community oh, yeah absolutely i i could uh, yeah, again I could, a whole podcast on that and i do think this what we when we work with people we say to them make it obvious that you support your clients who identify like this um a rainbow on the door helps it's like yeah. the first thing you see but it's got to yeah. be more than that yeah. But that you need to make it overt. And the reason is because the people who identify like that may not tell you, so, but they need to be in a comfortable environment, a safe environment in order for that truth to come out. And that's when it's authentic and truthful, that's when the best practice happens. So so being overtly uh, open to LGBTQ plus people. I know people think, why are they in all of these flags and banners everywhere? It is because it's about being safe. So, so this is a really big thing, and you touched on absolutely perfect point there. Yeah, mm, that signal of safety. And so, what would your advice be to anybody who's listening to this who is still fearful about revealing the relationship that they're in? I, it's a really, it's a, again, this is a hard thing. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say to people. 
you know, come out what come what may, just take the consequences. You've got to you've got to have you've got to have some foundations for that. You've got to be know that you're supported, mm. um, and you 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 need to have some of the knowledge about how you f- deflect some of the criticism or some of the bad views that you might get. Mm. So you protect yourself because you know we are. We are not, we are all individuals, but we are all social creatures and we take on the pain that other people inflict upon us, whether we like it or not. So it's incredibly important to be very aware of how strong you are in order to do that. And I would never say to somebody, just do it anyway. What you need to do is probably find other people that you can rely on, you know, some peer support, other group, group get, get that support. Find people that are like you. Find people that understand you. Find people who will support you if your if your pathway is declining. Mm. So um, the importance, though, is I think you have to ask yourself ultimately whether or not you come out or not. Is is your life is it's important for your life to be authentic or not? Mm. And Tom, my partner, went on to I was invited to the TV. I was too frightened because I hadn't come out of work. He had, and he wore a T-shirt which said, "It's better to be loved." Um, for who you are than hated have I got that the right way for who you are not yeah uh, it's better to be loved oh, yeah <laughs> I see how you could get oh no it's better to be hated for who you are than loved for who you are not I knew I it the wrong way around <laughs> sorry I do apologize for that no, no, but no, but the, the point there is that if you are only a shadow of who you really are with everybody yeah. that's not good for you it's not it's not it's not going to, you're not, you can't build on that. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, but admittedly people need to protect themselves. I wouldn't ask anybody to come out unless they felt safe to do so. Yeah, um, but you. encourage people to join groups of people, get that support from your community, whatever it is, wherever it is, give yourself the strength to do it. Because if you come out, you can influence other people who are too frightened as well. That's the knock on effect that you make somebody else's life much better. Yeah, and I think there's safety in connecting with um, organisations like yours to at least have conversations. Yes. And to know that you are in a safe space to at least process out loud with people who are willing to listen. Yeah, absolutely. And um, how can people support your work? Are there ah, good question. <laughs> well, we, we uh, the kind of things that we need help with, which are they're not that easy to solve, uh, one of them is always going to be money. Our website is new. It's just about to come out. And I, it's the worst thing in the world to talk about money. But <clears throat> it, we, we, when we get, if I get paid for doing academic work, I just bung it back into the company. That's what I do. I'm not expecting people to send us money, not without a good reason. Um, but that maybe somewhere down the line, that will help us to spread the word bigger, wider, faster, and have more influence. However, as an organisation, <clears throat> we're all, I mean, I, I retired many years ago. Others are doing courses. Others are still working, but doing voluntary work. We're very lucky to have a very, you know, mixed sort of uh, professional group of people. <clears throat> um, but we have, we have a great desire. When we're ready is to sort of bring somebody in. Because it's online, we can give somebody access to our Google account and maybe help us with... Um, uh, chairing or minuting meetings, for example, these, and, and it's a bit low level. And I'm, I'm, so, if somebody wants to come and join because they have a specialism or an interest, as a, to become a member of the organisation, that as well. Um, but, but one of the things as a professional group of people is that the, the logistics of running the company are mm-hmm. quite 
they're quite demanding. Um, you know, if I go and do a training event, I've got a, you know, a, there's there's a lot I have to sort of sort out, let alone just talk for half an hour in front of people. It, there's a yeah. lot of logistical stuff that goes on behind. So, yes, yeah, so um, any any shared sort of knowledge information they want to send us, anything that we can take on board, any any experiences that people want to share with us, these are these are these are these add to, you know the the um, the reason why we do what we do, um, and any invitations to come and talk. So so there are a lot of things people could do, I think, and 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 be creative because we're a group of people who are very open to to um, spread the word, you know, engage with other groups of people, people even who don't necessarily think that they need to hear us. Uh, we do a lot of a lot of everything. So anybody who, who approaches with knowledge, information, advice, help, not don't worry about the money. That was a bit bit facetious, really. But that one day, day down the line, that might become more important than it is right now. Mike, don't yeah. be shy about the money. <laughs> <laughs> it does help. And I think that it's very reasonable to set up at least a mechanism by which people can choose to gift if they want to support you well that that's to to suggest that people might want to given the world you're in to open the, i assume are you a registered charity yeah uh, we yeah. are a registered company so so we can we we're allowed to accept donations on our website One, that's about to go up and running it's a very uh, untidy one at the moment but it's about to become formalized so we can accept donations in the name of the company uh, and because we have to do annual reports and annual financial reports to satisfy the ombudsman around these issues. So, mm. so you know, we are structured in a way that means we are responsible for any income that we have. Um, so, yes, yeah, so like a charity, we're, we're able to accept money, uh, donations, anything. Well, yeah. I think bequests might be reasonable too, um, you know. <laughs> it, it's it's an okay thing to say. I worked um, in mental health um, way back when and... You know, um, we had to look for funding as part of the Mental Health Foundation when I was yeah, yeah. in New Zealand. And it, it, it's, um, you know, it's a reality. You you need to be able to fund resources. You need to have money to develop the courses, you, you know. So don't be shy. It's good. Yeah, no, no. I think, I mean, I know that if, if, if I was looking, say, two years down the line or something and we had sufficient funding, we would be going out and doing more training. We, we've done webinars which are online. They're quite easy mm -hmm. to do. They don't cost a lot of money, but we've also done training. That means lots of train fares for a number of us to yeah. go somewhere. So so the funding can help to increase um, our capability to influence. Money's a part of it. There's no question about it. And the bigger we get, um, the more influence we'll have and the better it'll be, the outcomes will be for people that we're trying to help. So, yeah. yeah. Um, is, is there anything we haven't spoken about that was in that, in your head that you wanted to talk about or that you would like to highlight or say? I think anybody listening to this, um, whether or not they identify in this community or not, is is to understand the the difficulty of dementia. It's it is mm. um, a dementia diagnosis is more shocking than think than people realise. Whoever it is in you know that we know a family friend or anybody else, and sadly, too many people are hearing that. In the UK, 940,000 people living with a dementia diagnosis, possibly higher. And that's just increasing year on year. And um, the problem is that the entire infrastructure of that support for those people, pretty well, um, for those that are not in formal care, is through unpaid carers. People like me, husbands to 
daughters do, husbands do, wives do, somebody. Um, and I, I, all I'd say is have a think. If you, if you come across somebody who tells you that they're a, an unpaid carer, mm. be gentle and kind to them because they're doing an amazing job. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 Totally. And, so and support the carers as well. It's it's it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Um, Mike, thank you. It's been amazing to be with you today. And um, I think we'll probably find a reason to bring you back and talk to you again because <laughs> it's just um, delightful. And the work you do is incredible. Um, and anybody who wants to reach out, find out more, connect, um, you'll be able to check in the bio um, how to do that. Wonderful. Jane, thank you. It's been wonderful for me. And thank you so much for the opportunity to, to share what we do. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. You can find out more about the LGBTQ plus dementia advisory group online at lgbtqdementiaadvisorygroup.net or you can find the link in this episode description. There's also links there to some of the resources that Mike referred to during the conversation. And before we sign off, we want to remind you that our book, The Organ Education Forgot, is now available as both a downloadable PDF and a physical copy, so you can read it in whichever format you prefer. Both are available at sexandspace.com forward slash book. Make sure to leave a like, follow, comment or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support means the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode. Bye.